desire, frustration, and rage. When King and several of his co-workers rushed to Watts to engage some of the young men who were most deeply involved in the uprising, they heard the youth say, We won. Looking at the still smoldering embers of the local community, the visitors asked what winning meant, and one of the young men declared, We won because we made them pay attention to us. Building on all of the deep resources of empathy and compassion that seemed so richly and naturally a part of his life, King appeared determined not only to pay attention, but to insist that his organization and his nation focus themselves and their resources on dozens of poor, exploited black communities, and especially their desperate young men, whose broken lives were crying out for new, humane possibilities in the midst of the wealthiest nation in the world. Speaking later at a staff retreat of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, King expressed a conviction that had long been a crucial part of what he saw when he paid attention to the nation's poorest people. He said, Something is wrong with the economic system of our nation. Something is wrong with capitalism. Always careful, perhaps too careful, to announce that he was not a Marxist in any sense of the word, King told the staff he believed, There must be a better distribution of wealth, and maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. This seemed a natural direction for someone whose ultimate societal goal was the achievement of a nonviolent, beloved community. But a major part of the white American community and its mass media seemed only able to condemn Negro violence and to justify a white backlash against the continuing attempts of the freedom movement to move northward toward a more perfect union. King wisely identified the fashionable backlash as a continuing expression of an anti-democratic white racism that was as old as the nation itself. Meanwhile, even before Watts, King and the SCLC staff had begun to explore creative ways in which they could expand their effort to develop a just and beloved national community by establishing projects in northern black urban neighborhoods. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, the other major Southern movement organizing force, was involved in similar Northern explorations by the mid-1960s, but both organizations were hampered by severe financial difficulties, partly because of some earlier contacts with Chicago-based community organizers, King and SCLC decided to focus on that deeply segregated city as the center of their expansion into the anguish of the North. By the winter of 1966, SCLC staff members had begun organizing in Chicago. At that point, King decided to try to spend at least three days a week actually living in one of the city's poorest black communities, a west side area named Lawndale. From that vantage point, working sometimes uncomfortably with their Chicago colleagues, King and SCLC decided to concentrate their attention on a continuing struggle against the segregated, deteriorating, and educationally dysfunctional schools the often dilapidated housing, 
and the disheartening lack of job opportunities. This book must be read in the urgent context of King's difficult experiences in Watts and Chicago, which seemed more representative of the nation's deeper racial dilemma than were the southern battlegrounds of Selma and Montgomery. For instance, Chicago was the setting for King's fierce reminders that the economic plight of the masses of Negroes has worsened since the beginnings of the Southern Freedom Movement because slum conditions had worsened and Negroes attend more thoroughly segregated schools than in 1954. In the face of such hard facts, King insisted on pressing two other realities into the nation's conscience. One was his continuing plea for a coalition of Negroes and liberal whites that will work to make both major parties truly responsive to the needs of the poor. At the same time,